see if I'm on here. There I am. Well, welcome. Glad you're here. We're starting a summer series, six, six weeks long. It, it won't, it'll be over before we know it, but uh, we're going to take on a um, really a tough topic. We're going to talk about godliness. What does it mean to be a godly man? And so we're going to cover that for the next six weeks, but just to kind of get us kick-started, if you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here. Um, you have on your table um, the handout. And it's actually the handout for the entire series. So we don't normally do that. We give you the handout for each week. This one is all six weeks, all in one um, document. So you need to bring it back with you. It's got the, the teaching notes for each week. It's got the homework for the following week. And so everything's right there. There's also on the table a recommended reading list. These are uh, books that I've read in preparation for this series. I highly recommend them. A couple of them are... Uh, hard reads because they're written by Puritan writers um, back in the 1600s, um, but they are, Mitchell asked me, which of these are your favorites? And it's those books. Uh, they're deep, but they're rich. They're incredibly insightful when it comes to this topic of godliness. So I highly recommend you read them. Um, we're going to kick this thing off by kind of setting a definition for what is godliness? What is it we're talking about here? And so we're going to begin with a question, but before we do that, I want to launch us with some prayer. So let, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to come together and study your word as men, and I pray that as we dig into this topic that it would uh, become real and it would become applicable, that, Father, we would desire to be godly men, um, men who make a difference, men who are devoted to you, who have a healthy fear of you, who understand your love for us, and then who want to seek a relationship with you every day of our lives, not just on Sunday when we go to church, not just when we come to a Bible study, but every day we would seek you. And so, Father, would you guide us, direct us, open our eyes to see what you would have us to see, our ears to hear what you would have us to hear, and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. So here's the question. Are you a godly man? Don't answer. Um, this is a question that I've had to wrestle with all during the time I've been studying for this because um, my, my natural tendency would be to say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm a godly man. I'm a Christian. But, but here's the thing I've learned. Um, being a Christian does not necessarily make you a godly man. Um, you can be a Christian um, you can read your Bible, you can go to church, you can pray, you can tithe, you can do all the things that Christians are supposed to do and not yet be godly. And so that grabbed my attention because at the end of the day, I hope you, like me, want to be godly. Um, you, you want to live a godly life, but what I've come to understand is that many of the days of my life, I don't live in a godly way. So this question is, important for us to understand. And the scriptures are full of admonitions about godliness. Listen to what Paul writes to his protege, Timothy. Don't waste time arguing over godless ideas or old wise tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. So what he's telling him is that this is something you have control over. You can become more godly. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Some of you in the room work out. Some of you in the room probably need to work out. Um, some of us are in better shape than others. But here's Paul telling Timothy, 
hey, it's great to work out and be in good, healthy, physical condition, but if you don't work in your godliness, you're missing out. And so what I want to do is encourage you, encourage me, that we need to make godliness a high priority. He says it promises benefits in this life, but in the life to come. Here, here's the deal. Here's what I've done enough funerals over the years to know that even men in great shape die. Um, I've seen some really healthy bodies in caskets with no heartbeat, and I've seen very unhealthy bodies in caskets with no heartbeat. So your physical condition is great and wonderful, but it will not forestall death. Uh, it's going to come. And so that's why he says your spiritual training, your training in godliness has benefits now, but benefits to come. So are you a godly man? I don't want you to, to just blow past this question. I want you to really, even right now, just stop and think about whether or not you are a godly man. And don't assume you know the answer. You know, when I started this whole process of studying for the, this series, my initial thought was, well, yeah, I'm a godly man. I just want to be a more godly man. Well, am I a godly man according to the scriptures, according to God's definition? See, godliness is not static. It's not something you are all the time. You flow in and out of godliness. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're godly. You're not born with godliness, and you're not born again into godliness. And that, that was a kind of a mind-blowing thing for me to consider, that just because I've placed my faith in Christ does not guarantee that every day of my life I live in a godly way and that I bear godly characteristics. I didn't get it at salvation. It's an add-on. And again, this is probably new to some of you because your assumption is when I came to faith in Christ, I got godliness. I became a child of God. But being a child of God doesn't necessarily mean that you live a godly life. See, here's, here's another admonition from Scripture. This is Peter writing, saying, supplement your faith with a generous provision of, and then he gives us a list. Now look at this list. Moral excellence. We get it, right? Live a moral life. Do the right thing. Live in a way that would be honoring to God. And to moral excellence, add knowledge. And to knowledge, add self-control. And self-control, add patient endurance. And patient endurance, add what? Godliness. And we'll unpack a little bit more of what that word means. And then to godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. And then he ends up with this. The more you grow like this, grow like what? With all these characteristics, including godliness, the more productive and use, useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. I grew up in a pastor's home. I, I heard the gospel from the moment I could understand the meaning of words. And for me, the gospel was always come to faith in Christ and you'll have everything that you need. And I still believe that. But what is Peter saying in these, these verses? You've got to add to that relationship with Christ these things in order for it to be complete. Now, I'm not saying you need to add anything to faith in Christ to be saved, but in order for you to be a godly man, there are some things that are necessary, some add-ons that are required. Faith in Christ is wonderful. Faith in Christ is what guarantees you salvation and ultimately eternal life, but yet we're here we got to live in this world. It's a godless world. We all know that, right? 
And so how do we live godly here and now during the time we have on this earth? So it's an add-on. So what is this thing called godliness? First of all, it can't be, it can be fake, but it can't be fabricated. You cannot make godliness. You can fake it, right? Uh, I, I am great at faking godliness. Um, I can wake up in the morning and I can get into traffic and I can head to church to my office and I can get cut off by somebody and I can be livid and I can be angry and I can cuss that person out not verbally, but mentally, uh, and I can be angry by the time I get to my office, but I can put on my godly countenance, right? Because I'm a pastor. I have to look godly. I have to act godly, and I'm great at knowing what that looks like, but guess what? Just because I look it doesn't mean I am, and so this idea of I can fake it, we all do it, right? I'm, I'm amazed at how every Sunday people walk into church on this campus, the South Campus, the Fort Worth Campus, They've had a fight in the car. They've screamed at their kids because they couldn't get their socks on and couldn't find their other shoe. And they get out of the car and they put on the smile and they walk into church and they're pissed at one another. They're angry, but they look godly, right? We can fake it, but we can't fabricate it. It's not self-produced. See, I would love for it to be self-produced, but I can't. All I can do is a bad version of it an incomplete version of it so that's why paul warned timothy about that very thing he says in the last days terrible times will come now if you watch the news at all this last week we live in terrible times right what happened in allen uh, the things going on in our culture we live in terrible times we live in difficult days he says for men will be lovers of themselves Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous. This is the culture in which we live, right? Without self-control, brutal, without the love of good, traitorous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. I think that's fascinating. They have a form of godliness, but look at all the things he used to describe them. All the stuff that we would say is negative bad evil wicked and yet he says they have a form of godliness but deny its power see this is what really jumps out at me in studying this topic is that i have lived far too many years of my life with a form of godliness but it lacks power and so that's why these kinds of things not not only show up in the culture they can show up in my life and that's a pretty sorted list, right? Um, I don't want that list on my obituary, you know, that people read while they're sitting there staring at my casket that, oh, he was abusive, disobedient to his parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. And yet I am capable of any and all of those things. And they're a picture of godlessness. But the sad thing is they're a picture of many of us who claim to be godly. No, we don't live that way all the time, and we may not do all of those things, but we are capable of and complicit in doing many of those things, even though we claim a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a form of godliness. It's a fake version of godliness. It's not the real thing. So you and I can appear to be godly to those that we know. Your coworkers may think you're godly because you appear different than them. 
they know you go to church, so you therefore must be godly because you go to church. But I can even make people think I'm godly. Again, because I can, I can get to church on a Sunday morning. I can be in a foul mood. I, I can have spent no time with God. But as soon as I walk into the church, I can give the appearance of godliness. Because I've been around the church long enough to know what that should look like. What do godly people do? Well, they smile a lot. They don't complain. If anybody asks me how I am on a Sunday, I'm going to go, I'm great. When it, the truth is, I may be miserable and I may be angry. I know what it looks like to appear to be godly. And I can fool most people except my wife and my kids. I, I know how to pull this thing off and so do you. So one of the books that I recommended is written by a guy named Thomas Watson. And you can tell by his glamour shot here that he's uh, from a different era. Listen to what he says. Men are ambitious of credit. Now just think about social media, right? Everybody wants to be on social media for what reason? To get credit. Not to expose their deep, dark secrets. Not to look the worst version of themselves, but the best version of themselves. You know, your best vacation, your best moment, your successes, not your failures. We wish to gain repute in the world. Therefore, they will dress themselves in the garb and mode of religion so that others may write them down as saints. That's what people do, even in our godless culture. Then he goes on and says, but alas, what is one the better for having others commend him and his conscience condemn him? So what good does it do is everybody thinks I'm godly, but I know I'm not. What good is it to me if I can fool you into thinking I'm a godly person, but in my heart of hearts, I know I'm not what I appear to be. What good will it do a man when he is in hell that others think he has gone to heaven? Now, again, I've done a lot of funerals and I've heard people say great things about people who are laying in a casket no longer with us. I've never heard anybody stand in a service and go, he was a jerk, I hated him, he was miserable, I'm glad he's gone. Now they were thinking it probably, but nobody got up and said it. What do people say at funerals? Oh, he was wonderful, he was a good man, he was a godly man, he was a good father, he was a wonderful boss. Everybody says the best at that moment, but here's the deal, none of that makes a difference in that person's eternal state what men think of us doesn't matter what god thinks of us does matter oh beware of this counterfeit piety is double iniquity those are just big words to say faking godliness doesn't do you any good it has no value it may make you feel good for the moment when people pat you on the back and talk about how godly you are but it will have no long-term benefits as peter said so what is it? What is godliness? The Greek word is eusebi. Godliness, holiness, devotion to God. That's what it, what it means, at least biblically. It's, it's, at the core, it's about devotion. Um, and that's going to be something we're going to wrestle with for six weeks. What does it mean to be devoted to God? You are devoted to a lot of things. I don't know many of you in the room, but I'm going to guess that you have something you're devoted to, whether it's your golf clubs, your bass boat, your family, your career, your health, your portfolio. You've got something you're devoted to. So we're going to apply that idea to are you devoted to God? 
What does it mean to be devoted to God? And it comes from another word, same root word, to be pious, devout, reverent towards something or someone. In this case, God. Are you devoted to God? Godliness, at the end of the day, is about your relationship with God. And, and here's, here's the thing I've wrestled with over the last week studying for this is that I have an interesting relationship with God. I know my relationship with God comes through my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my access to God the Father. Without Christ, I have no access to God. I know I'm created by God. I'm, I know I'm made in God's image, but it's Jesus Christ who gives me access to a relationship with God. But my relationship with God, at least for me, is kind of interesting because when I get up in the morning to study, like I did this morning, um, I get into the word. I know it's God's word. I know he speaks to me through his word. But I can go through that process and not have any inkling of an idea of a relationship. In other words, I'm looking at words on a page. I know they come from God. And I'm looking for what I can learn from them, but at no point in the process do I necessarily feel like I'm in a close relationship with him. I don't feel like he's sitting there with me. I don't feel like he's necessarily talking to me. Now, there are moments when I do feel like, like he's right there with me and he's speaking into my ear and he's saying, hey, Ken, I want you to go back and look at verse 3. I want you to think about that in your life. But so often I can spend time in the word. The word I know is written by God. And I can feel like I don't have a relationship going on with God at that moment. It's like you, you can sit down in the same room with your wife watching the same movie and never feel like she's even in the room. You, you can be in the same room doing the same thing and yet there's no sense of a relationship going on. Present but distant. And that's kind of what we do with God. And it can happen having a quiet time in the morning. It can happen during even a prayer time, which is amazing. I can talk at God and not hear anything from God. That's not a relationship, guys. That's, that's just you dictating what you desire from him. And so this, this is talking about something pretty important. Godliness is, again, devotion to God, which results in a life that's pleasing to him. Now stop and think about that. What does that even mean? Well, it means that it's, it's actionable. It, 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 it's not just something up in your brain. It shows up in the way you live. And one of the greatest ways to show anyone or anything that you're devoted to him, her, or it is by how you act. I can tell my wife I love her, but if I don't show her that I love her, guess what she will begin to doubt? that I love her. She'll, she'll wonder, well, you, you say you do, but you don't do the things I ask you to do, or you don't spend any time with me, and you seem to prefer that or this over me. See, devotion without action is just words. And so that's why this idea of devotion is going to be so critical to what we look at when we look at the lives of the men that we're going to unpack over the next weeks. How did these men, and we're going to look at five different men, how did they either show godliness or not show godliness? How did their lives exhibit 
this idea that they had added to their faith something necessary. And in this case, the add-on is what? Godliness. So what does a godly man look like? What are the characteristics? And if I took the time, we could go around the room and you, you would name all of these things. I guarantee this is the list you would come up with. And the first list you would go to are all the gifts of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You would go there because unless you've been under a rock and never been in the church, I guarantee this is the first thing that would come to your mind. You would have these characteristics in mind. That's what a godly person looks like. And then you'd begin to add things like, well, he reads his Bible. He prays a lot. He goes to church regularly. Now, again, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was my pastor all the way through my senior year of high school. And these things were driven into my brain. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor, and we prayed, and we went to church, and we went on Wednesday night, we went on Tuesday night, we went on Sunday morning, we went on Sunday night. We went to church all the time. And as a kid, I hated it. But I knew I had to go to church. I remember one night, we're driving home from evening service on Sunday night, and nobody came except my family. And there were a handful of people that came, and we're driving home, and my dad was still at the church, so my mom's driving. I'm in the back seat between two of my older siblings, and something came over me. And I said, Mom, why do we have church on Sunday nights? And she's driving, and she's, because that's what we do. And again, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, and I said, yeah, but nobody comes. And she goes, and she turned around, and it was like, it was almost a, an exorcist moment. Like her head spun around, her body stayed driving, and she turned around, and my siblings moved away. And she lit me up. She said, we will go to church with her. Nobody comes. We will be there. The Millers will be in church because that's what we do. And their heads spun back around and she just kept going. And my siblings never moved close to me. And, and even as a kid, though, I wrestled with, well, that wasn't an answer. That, that, that doesn't help me. Why do we go to church? Just because that's what we do? But see, that was driven into my head. See, my dad would measure my spirituality by, based on a series of questions. Did you read your Bible today? And I would usually lie and say, well, yeah, sure. And he'd go, how much? Well, what do you mean, how much? Well, how many chapters did you read? And I'd lie again and go, uh, two. What book? And then I'd have to figure out a book to, to name. Uh, John. And he'd say, what would you get out of it? And, of course, I got nothing out of it because I hadn't read anything. And then he'd say, did you pray? Yeah, how long? And then he said, he just asked me all these questions about things that I had done that I hadn't done. And so what it taught me was, if I don't do those things, I'm not really a Christian or I'm not really godly. So I equated activity with godliness. Did I read my Bible? Did I pray? Did I go to church? Am I selfless in my service to my wife and my children? See, all of these things are great, right? Being generous with your money, your time, your talents, that's all great. But here's the problem with all of these things. They don't necessarily characterize godliness. They're characteristics. They're Christian characteristics that are good and even required of us. But they don't necessarily mean that you will live a godly life. 
See, I would read my Bible as a kid because my dad told me I had to read my Bible, but I never got anything out of it, and I hated the entire process. That doesn't make you godly just because you do. Their behaviors, their activities, but they aren't necessarily a guarantee of godliness. Because why? I can self-produce every one of them. I can muster up enough gumption to get up in the morning and read my Bible, close it, have gotten nothing out of it, but at least I feel like I, I did the right thing. And I go on my merry way, and I've learned nothing from, from anything that I've done. See, there's no guarantee that I'm godly. Should we do them? Yes. That's not my point. I'm not telling you you don't have to have a quiet time. You don't need to give your money to God. You don't need to go to church. But if you only do those things out of some sense of duty, some, some legalistic attitude that this is what's required of me, without a desire for a relationship with God, out, out of no devotion to God, you will be no more godly tomorrow than you are today. And I think that's the state of the church, the global church, that we've gone through the motions for so long that we've basically made those our whole concept of godliness. And yet we have no relationship so Jerry Bridges wrote another book that I highly recommend. He's a little easier to read because he didn't grow up in the 1600s and he doesn't uh, quote the King James, but he's just as deep. And he says this, there's no higher compliment that can be paid to a Christian than to call him a godly person. If you were to walk up to me on any day or any Sunday and say, man, you're, you're such a godly man, I would, I would get puffed up with pride and go, well, yeah, you're right. I'm glad you noticed. Um, if I called you a godly man, you would find that, you know, encouraging. It, it's, we, we want to be thought of as godly, right? I, I, want, I would love for you to say that. But he goes on and says, he might be a conscientious parent, a zealous church worker, a dynamic spokesman for Christ, a talented Christian leader, but none of these things matters if at the same time he's not a godly person. You can call me a godly person because you see these characteristics, but if I'm not truly a godly person, in other words, if I'm not truly devoted to God, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what you think of me. What matters is what does God think of me? And there's only one person in the universe who truly knows whether I'm godly or not. And that's God. And so I need to be concerned about what does he think of me? What does he think of you? So what we want to do is we want to look at some biblical models of godliness and here's a sad thing in scripture. There's not a whole lot of them. There's a whole lot of the other, right? There's a whole lot of godless people in the Bible because there's a lot of fallen people in the Bible. But there's a few that we can look at that we're going to learn from. And we're going to look at two men this morning just briefly. They're not the five that we're going to unpack. But I want to take these two to kind of set a precedence for where we're going with this thing. So two men that we want to consider. First one is a guy named Enoch, who we don't know a whole lot about. And then the other one is David, King David, who we're probably more familiar with. So what do we know about Enoch? If you were here for our, our study on Genesis, we briefly tapped into this guy in our study of Genesis because he's in the early chapters of Genesis. And here's what it tells us about Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. So this guy lived a long time. They lived longer in, in that day and age. And then he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 days. The key phrase here is what? Enoch walked with God. What does that mean? 
Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. This is an interesting verse because it's a little confusing what it means. He walked with God and he was not. Now we know from other passages what happened is that he walked with God and he was not means he just suddenly disappeared. God took him. But God took him because he walked with God. God removed him off the face of the earth because he had a relationship with God. Now you're thinking, well, that's, that's weird. Why did he kill him if he walked with God? Well, he didn't kill him. He literally took him alive to be with God. He didn't die. That's what it means when it says, and he was not. He didn't die. You know, you, you, you've probably been to funerals where you, you saw someone there in the casket and you thought, why did God take such a godly person? He was a good dad. He was a good father. He was a good man. Why did God take that person? Well, that's not what happened with Enoch. He literally, God took him in his living state to be with him. Why? Because he walked with God. Now, again, that, that may not hit you as significant, but this only happened on a couple of occasions that anybody got taken alive and the reason for it is because of his relationship. What does it say? He walked with God. And the word literally means he walked about with God. He had a walking daily relationship with God Almighty. Now what's important to understand is that in that day and age, nobody else did. This is after the fall. This is after the world had gotten increasingly more wicked. And here was this guy named Enoch who had a relationship with God constant communion with God when everybody else around him was what living in wickedness walking away from God he was walking with God and, and that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in right we're surrounded by wickedness it seems like everybody's walking away from God and we are called to walk with God to have communion constant communion with God every day no matter what we're doing and that's what it says of him Hebrews chapter 11 says, it was by faith that Enoch was taken up into heaven without dying. That's how we know he didn't die, because the author of Hebrews tells us. It says he disappeared. I, I, I would love to have been there when this happened. You know, he's hanging around with his buddies, and suddenly he, he's just gone. Where, where'd Enoch go? They have no clue where Enoch went. And, and they looked for him for probably months and nobody found Enoch. Why? Because Enoch was now with God. He was taken up. He disappeared. God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. Now, I know I've talked a lot about funerals today. Because I just did one last week. When I die, and it's going to happen... I want to be known as a person who pleased God. Not because I did all these things, but because my life showed I was devoted to God. I want my kids, adult kids, I want my grandkids to say that their father and grandfather walked with God, had a relationship with God, pleased God. And then he goes on, because it's impossible to please God without faith. So at the end of the day, we're basically being called to be people of faith, men of faith. 
who live in such a way that our faith shows that we love God, are devoted to God, understand who God is, and therefore our lives are pleasing to God. I want to be a person who pleases God. But how do I do that? Well, I've got to have a God-centered life. And, and I know how hard this is, right? I, I, I'm smart enough, I've been around long enough to know that it is hard to live God-centered in a world that is God-less. Um, and I hang out mostly with God, God's people, right? I'm a, I'm a preacher. I'm, I'm at church almost all the time. I get up every morning and I drive to some church, some campus, and I'm around people who claim to have a relationship with God. So I'm not around a whole lot of godless people. And yet I know how hard it is, even in that context, to stay God-centered because of the world in which we live. I want to be a person who has a personal relationship with God. And I do, right, because of my relationship with Jesus Christ, but do I live in such a way that it shows that I have that relationship? Do my actions, my attitudes, my, my thoughts reflect that I have an ongoing relationship with God? That I recognize that he's with me all the time. And there, it shows up in that I'm devoted to him. I'm more devoted to him than I am to my wife, my kids, and my grandkids. I'm more devoted to him than I am to you. Does that, does that show up in my life? And is it clear that I live a life that I want to be pleasing to him? Now where this gets really wonky for all of us in the room is that I am tempted every day in my life to live a life that's pleasing to me, right? You woke up this morning and I guarantee you thought about, I wonder what they're having for breakfast. I hope it's something I like. And if it wasn't something you liked, you were probably a little you know, unhappy with you know, whatever was there or there wasn't enough or they ran out of the eggs or they put cheese in the egg and I don't want cheese in my eggs. We live to please us. That's the thing we fight every day, but I'm to live to please God. And so it's an ongoing battle that you face and that I face. How do I live a life that's pleasing to God, like Enoch? Well, what about David? Well, it says the Lord sought a man after his own heart. If you know the story, Saul was the first king of Israel. And the people said, we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations. So God said, okay, I'll give you a king like all the other nations. And he gave them Saul. And Saul proved to be just what they asked for. He was not a godly man. He was a godless man. Even though he was a worshiper of Yahweh, he did not live in obedience to Yahweh. And he didn't please Yahweh. And so God chose to replace him with David. And he said to the prophet Samuel, I have found a man after my own heart. Now, you may have heard this phrase before, and if you have, I hope you wrestled with, could that be said of me, that I'm a man after God's own heart? Do I have that kind of quality about me that God could say, Ken Miller is a man after my own heart? Well, that's what he said of David. It says in Acts chapter 13, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. He didn't say that of Saul. It wasn't true of Saul. He couldn't say it of Saul, but he could say it of David, this young man who he chose to replace King Saul. 
And it says, David found favor with God. Why did David find favor with God? Because David had a heart for God and a willingness to do all his will. Now, if you've studied David's life, you know that David didn't live a completely godly life all the time, right? You, you know he did a few things in his life that kind of reveal that he wasn't always doing things that please God. But he had a heart for the things of God. And that's, that's key. Do you, do I have a heart for the things of God? Do I want to please God? And, and I think I could probably say on your behalf, just like I, I could say on my behalf, I really do want to please God. I really do have a heart for God. I just don't always live devoted to God. But guess what? Neither did David. He had his ups and downs. He had his highs and his lows. He had moments of faithfulness, moments of lack of faithfulness. But at the end of the day, when you study the context of his entire life, you see that he lived devoted to God, even though there were peaks and valleys. Even though there are the good moments and the bad moments. So what do we learn from his life? How do we see that he was devoted to God? Well, the key definition here is devotion is love, loyalty, or enthusiasm for a person, activity, or cause. It's this zeal for something. If you like golf, you are probably zealous about golf. And you put money into that. If you love hunting... You spend money on ammunition or guns. You, know, you, you go out and you practice and you shoot. You, you pour time, energy, and resources into that which you're devoted to. Your wife, your kids. That's what it means. Love, loyalty, or enthusiasm. It's the fact, the quality, or state of being devoted. And you know what you're devoted to. And I'm not going to slam you for being devoted to your bass boater. Whatever it is you, you love, that's That's fine. But are you devoted to God? Do you have piety, loyalty, a deep affection for God? And how does that show up in your life? How does it show up in my life? So what, what is this devotion to God? Well, we're going to set the context this morning and look at three different things. And we're going to unpack these as we continue over the next weeks. This is the first one. Devotion to God shows up in a healthy fear of God. Do you fear God? And it's important that we understand this because we have somehow decided that fear of God is not a good thing. But the Bible speaks constantly about the fear of God. John Murray says this, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. If you want to be a godly man, it begins with the fear of God. Now this is not, a, I call it a healthy fear because there is a negative fear, an unhealthy fear of God. And that's fearing God as this wicked, evil angry judge who's up in heaven with his arms folded and he is hacked at you and he just can't wait to lambast you he can't wait to deliver the judgment on you that that's somehow we how we view the fear of God but in this context the fear of God is a good thing it's it's understanding who God is and it's the sign of a both a well-developed Christian and a healthy church to have a fear of God the best analogy I can give you is that I fear electricity. I, I don't mess around with electricity. I'm, I'm a do-it-yourselfer. I will try anything. I'll do plumbing. I'll, I'll do any kind of repair work except electricity because I fear electricity. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean when I walk past an outlet in my home, I, I, I cower. 
you know, or I'm afraid to plug in anything. I, I'm fearful of electricity in the sense that I don't play fast and loose with it. I respect it. I enjoy it. I'm glad we have it, and I take full advantage of it. I just don't screw around with it because I know what it can do. That's the best analogy I can give you about a healthy fear of God. I know who he is. I know he's powerful. I know he's fully holy and righteous, and I'm not, and yet he loves me. I'm going to take full advantage of all that he offers me, but I'm not going to play fast and loose with that kind of power. That's what this means to have a healthy fear. The church in Acts throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. Why? Because it had a healthy fear of God. Peter says this, remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him. That he's going to smash you, that he's going to, you know, just ignite you in flames? No, but that he will judge you and he will punish you and discipline you out of love for you. So have fear of him, a reverent, a reverential fear of him. It's important. It's good. Dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body and spirit. Let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. So fear God. And again, it should be reverential, which means worshipful. You don't cower, you don't run from him, but you approach him with reverence and you're deferential, you're respectful at all times because you know who he is. You know his glory, his awe, his holiness, and you treat him for who he is. So this idea of fearing God is so important. Godly men or God-fearing men who have these qualities, a proper understanding of his character, a pervasive sense of his presence, you know he's there. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. No matter what you're doing, he's there. And he sees everything that you do. A constant awareness of his expectations. What does God want from you? What does he expect of you? Secondly, a deep appreciation for his love. This is so important. And I think it extends directly from a fear of him. Because you fear him, you appreciate his love for you. Because you know God's holy and righteous and just, and you're not, and yet he loves you, that, that should be an amazing thing to you. To be unconditionally loved by a holy God should stagger us. It should blow us away. Why would he love me as wicked as I can be? So I've got to comprehend his holiness to fully appreciate his love. That my God would love me should blow me away every day, especially after I've done something unloving and unlovable and unlovely, that he still loves me. He hasn't left me. He didn't bail on me. And I believe me, guys, I, there are days when I think God, God's just up there going, oh, man, I, okay, I'm done. I've had it with you. But that never happens. He keeps loving me. He keeps extending grace and mercy in me. See, 1 John says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life. This is real love. Not that we love God. Not that you got your proverbial act together and love God. 
but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's amazing, right? That's that amazing grace we send about, that God, this holy, righteous God, would love us. And Paul tells the Ephesians, may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness and life and power that comes from God. If you understand how holy he is and then you comprehend how much he's shown you love by giving his son, that will change the way you live. It it, it will change your conduct because God showed his great love by sending his son to die for us. When? While I was still a sinner. I didn't have to get my act together. He just loved me. So godly men understand their own unworthiness. They comprehend the depth of their sinfulness and they glory in the grace of God. See, that fear of God is coupled with an understanding of the love of God, and that produces, at the end of the day, godliness. I love this from Romans. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, oh, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive, but you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. The offer of forgiveness. What an amazing thing that this holy, righteous God would offer forgiveness to us. And Paul says, nothing can separate us from God's love. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Nothing you do today will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. He'll never fall out of love with you. That's why this is so incredible. And finally, the third thing is a passionate desire for intimacy with God. Why would we not respond to those first two things with a desire to be with him? Godly men long to be with God. They seek him with all their heart. They want nothing more than to be with God. And see, I can't say that of me. I I hate that, but I can't say that every moment of my day, I want to be with God. I I can honestly say that in the morning when I spend time in the word, I really do want to go spend time in the word. I'm at a point in my life where I thoroughly enjoy time in the word with God. But the problem is when I finish that process, so much of the rest of the day is about me. It's like, okay, I gave God my time. Now the rest of the day is mine. What I want to do is cultivate a desire to seek him every hour of every day. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Not just in the morning, not just in this Bible study, not on Sunday when you go to church, but every hour of the day to seek him with all your heart, seeking a relationship with him. See, David had that. He longed for God. He wanted to be with God. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to be with God. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? Do I long for that? And the Apostle Paul had the same desire for intimacy with Christ. He says, that I may know him, Jesus, experientially becoming more thoroughly acquainted with him, understanding the remarkable wonders of his person more completely. And in that same way experience the power of his resurrection, which overflows and is active in us as believers. And that I may share the fellowship of his sufferings by being continually conformed inwardly into his likeness, even to his death, dying as he did. See, that's what we should respond with. This desire to be with God, to be like God. So a godly man longs for that deeper relationship. When? When you're at this Bible study? Hopefully. But even when you leave this Bible study. A godly man is never satisfied. You can't get enough of God. You want more. 
Jesus said that the knowledge of God is the essence of eternal life. You know what eternal life is? You know what spending eternally with God is? It's getting to know him better and better every day. You will never exhaust your knowledge of God. It'll take eternity and you'll never, never know God completely. But you'll grow and grow in knowledge of God. That's why he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So listen to this last little quote here. Devotion signifies a life given or devoted to God. He therefore is the devout or godly man who lives no longer to his own will or the way and spirit of the world, but to the sole will of God, who considers God in everything, who serves God in everything, who makes all parts of his common life parts of piety or godliness by doing everything in the name of God and under such rules as are conformable to his glory. This was written in 1729, and it's as true today as it was then. That's what it means to be a godly man, devoted to the things of God. So a God-pleasing life is the practice of godliness that involves the cultivation of a relationship with God, results in a life that is pleasing to God, and it will dictate our concept of God. I don't know what you think about God this morning, but this study, I hope, will change your whole idea of who God is and what kind of relationship you can have. And it will determine your behavior from this point forward to live a God-pleasing life. It said that many Christians do not have this aura of godliness about them. They may be very talented, personable, or very busy in the Lord's work, or even apparently successful in some avenues of Christian service and still not be godly. They may be devoted to a vision, to a ministry, or their own reputation as Christians, but they're not devoted to God. So what do we do with this? This is the introduction. This is, this is how we're going to proceed. But here's what I want you to talk about around the tables this morning. And, and we, don't, we normally have table shepherds who moderate these discussions. We don't technically have table shepherds in the summer. So somebody's got to step up and lead. So here's your questions. Devotion to God should be comprised of these three things, a healthy fear, a deep appreciation for his love, and a desire for a relationship with him. Which do you struggle with the most and why? Which of those three are really hard for you? Are most Christians concerned about living a God-pleasing life? If not, why? Why do we not even think about living a God-pleasing life? And then finally, what keeps us from being fully devoted to God and what can we do about it? So those are your questions. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for these guys as they talk around these tables that you would open up their lips to speak truth to one another, that they would be honest, that they would be transparent. Lord, we don't want to fake it. We don't want to try to act like we're godly, that we're more holy than we are. We're, we're all fallen. We all make mistakes. None of us are where we need to be in our relationship with you. Help us to be honest. And may, Father, you speak to us through one another and may we encourage one another that, you know what, from this day forward, I want to be a man who lives to please God in every area of my life, every day of my life. And Lord, I lift up these guys and I thank you for their presence here this morning. And would you just speak to them through your word today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.